Well, good morning. Welcome to Manual Church. My name is Rex Blackburn. I'm just one of the members here. Uh, but today we are going to be in Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. I'll begin by reading the text. We'll say a brief word of prayer and then we'll get started. So Isaiah 42, we're going to start in verse 1. Let's read God's word together. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray. God, we who are gathered here as your people believe two very radical things. We believe that you exist, that you are. That in and of itself is life-changing. We also believe, radically, that you have spoken, that you have said things that are recorded for us, and we are to know them and to understand them and appreciate them. So God, help us to do that today. We want our hearts to align with your purposes for them. That we would love Christ. That we would have a sense of Christ's love for us. God, these are the things that we desire this morning as we approach your word. So Father, bring them to pass. In Jesus' name, amen. So this sermon will be about mainly one of those verses. So we read nine verses, Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, but the sermon will primarily be just focused on verse 3. And if you were looking at the bulletins this morning, you saw that the title of the message is drawn directly from verse 3. And so this is a sermon about Isaiah 42, 3. However, we're going to seek to understand the larger context in which it's placed so that we can better understand Isaiah 42, 3. So this sermon, I want you to think of it as an airplane. You sort of take a high flyover where it is that you're going to be landing, get a good sense of the lay of the land. Then we sort of, you know, with point two, we'll sort of be spiraling down, beginning our descent. And then we seek to land in point three, in verse three. 
So that's sort of how the message is going to move this morning. So we'll kind of survey the text as a whole. Then we'll sort of pass back over the text, zooming in a little bit, so that our focus eventually, at the end of the message, will narrow down just to verse 3. So just so you know what's going on, uh, that's what the pilot plans on doing here. Um, The points that I'm going to draw out here, the observations that I'd like to make about this text, are not novel or clever in any way. They're just simple observations about what's said in the text. Uh, First of all, we're going to look at the meaning of the larger text. Secondly, we want to focus in on the ministries of God in this text. And third, uh, we'll focus in on the maladies of the soul and how this text addresses those. So... First, let's look through the entire text, do a brief run-through of it. I want to just survey some of the major elements in this text. First of all, this text focuses in on a character known as the servant of the Lord. And if you know Isaiah at all, you know that this is a character that we've seen before in Isaiah. We'll see a few times in Isaiah. Uh, So this, this servant of the Lord will pop up maybe four or five different places where you'll hear these songs of the servant that pop up in the book of Isaiah. So if you're familiar with Isaiah 53, that's a text that's, that's very well known in churches. Uh, that's a text about the servant of the Lord. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. Uh, the, these are familiar texts to a lot of Christians, and those are referring to that servant. When Isaiah is delivering that information in chapter 53, he's talking about the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. So let's, let's look at this servant and what he's like, how he's described in Isaiah 42. So the passage begins, behold my servant. And let's just stop for a minute. I'm an English teacher. I somehow end up saying that every time I get to preach to you all. Um, but I'm an English teacher. So first word in the chapter, verb, behold. What type of verb is that? Some of you are saying it in your minds right now, and I'm very pleased with you all. It's an imperative verb. It's a command. So Isaiah is telling us, behold this servant. So, in obedience to that command, let's behold him. Let's ask, okay, what is the ministry of this servant as Isaiah 42 outlines it? So, we see that this servant is one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord rests. Okay? He's upheld by the Lord himself. So, behold my servant whom I uphold, this is the Lord talking, my chosen in whom my soul delights. So we see this delight between the Lord and his servant. The spirit of the Lord is poured out upon this servant. We see in verse 2 and 3 that the ministry of this servant will be characterized by meekness, gentleness. He doesn't lift up his voice in the streets. He's He's not calling out or crying out. Matthew, in his gospel, will actually quote this passage. It's actually the longest Old Testament quote in the book of Matthew. And the way Matthew words that is he kind of gives his own translation of the Hebrew and says uh, that he will not quarrel the servant of the Lord. So he's upheld by Yahweh. Yahweh's spirit is poured out on him. His ministry is characterized by meekness and gentleness and tenderness. He doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't quench A faintly burning wick. We'll look more closely at what those things mean later. Yet, his ministry will also be in pursuit of justice. So we see justice come up several times when we're looking at the servant's ministry here. In verse 1, he will bring justice to the nations. Verse 3, 
he, the servant, will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will not grow faint, he will not be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. So, ministry of the servant here, we see meekness, gentleness, obviously a deep connection with the Lord himself, and then also this, this desire to bring about justice. Okay? The text then moves from talking about the servant to talking about Yahweh himself. So God is recognized in this text as the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. So this highlights his power. He made the heavens. He made the earth. We see that in verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens, who spread out the earth, and he sustains the things that he's made. He gives breath. He gives life to those who live on it. This is interesting to consider that even our very breath is sustained by God himself. So he made the earth. He made what comes from the earth. And he gives breath to the people on it. And spirit or life to those who walk in it. You realize every breath that's being breathed in this room right now, you are inhaling and exhaling. You're only able to do that because God is sovereignly upholding your very existence. Hebrews gives us insight into this, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. So God in his sovereignty is keeping your heart beating right now. Your breath is coming in and out of your lungs, sustaining the various parts of your body under God's sovereign direction. How meticulous is his sovereignty? That every single being in this person, every single cell in every single person is being upheld by God and his sovereignty. That's the God that's portrayed in this passage. A mighty God. He makes big things, but then there's all of these minuscule manifestations of his sovereignty as he upholds every person, every leaf on every tree, every bird that flies over. All of it is sustained by God. Then in verses 6 through 9, Yahweh speaks. So let's take a look at verse 6. He begins, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. As I'm reading this, I think, yes, God has called me as a believer in Christ. God is taking me by the hand. He's leading me. He's keeping me. But it becomes evident that the Lord is not talking to his people here directly. The Lord is talking to the servant. How do we know that? Well, let's look at what he says. I will give you as a covenant for the people. I will give you as a light for the nations. We have this confirmed in Luke. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the story when Jesus enters the temple as a young boy and uh, Simeon is there and Simeon says, yes, this is the Messiah. My eyes have lived to see the Messiah. This is the text he quotes. Uh, Luke brings in this text that Jesus will be a light to the nations. So God, Yahweh, the Lord here is talking to the servant. Anytime we see conversation, dialogue, happening between the members of the Godhead, we should listen. Because what an intricate and interesting relationship exists between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the three distinct persons existing by sharing one essence. Anytime there's conversation or dialogue happening that we need to listen. So what does Yahweh say to the servant who we understand is Jesus? I'll give you as a covenant to the people. I'll give you as a light to the nations. 
This servant will open the eyes of the blind, will bring out prisoners from the dungeon. So, much like the servant who we saw the focus of his ministry was justice, Yahweh is concerned as well with making things right. Blind eyes opened, captives freed, darkness made light. So we see that there's a lot of uh, overlap between the ministry of Yahweh and the ministry of his servant, which makes sense. And then finally, the text closes with Yahweh's own focus on his glory. So again, if he's portrayed as this magnificent, marvelous creator God, of course he deserves glory, and he lays claim to that. In language that could sound almost megalomaniacal, if it were coming from a person. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. But, of course, it's only right and good that he should say such things. That God should be selfish, jealous about his own glory. It would be wrong if he wasn't. He's the most glorious being in the universe. To whom will he give glory other than himself? So it's only right that God speak like this. We shouldn't be jarred when we hear God speak like this because he does so often. God is consumed with his own glory. That's why we should be consumed with his own glory. So again, there's our flyover. Major elements in the text. There's a lot more we could have said about things in the text, but I think that this briefly kind of gives us an introduction into here's the places that this text goes. So let's zoom in now a little bit, and let's focus more intently on the ministries of God in this text. I was going to say the ministries of Christ, the ministry of Christ or the ministry of the servant, but really we're describing here what the servant does and how he thinks and what he's doing, and then we also describe what Yahweh himself God the Father is doing what he is up to. So let's look at each of these. We're going to start by talking of the ministry of the Father. So I hope you note the Trinitarian, and I've already hit on this point, but the Trinitarian flavor in this passage. If you, a brief aside here, if you, Christian, find yourself in a position where you need to defend the doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists in three persons, in one nature, you might be frustrated to find that there are very few places in the Bible that really clearly lay out this doctrine for us. It's not something where there's a verse that says, and God exists in this way, and he is called a trinity. Uh, trinity is a word that we've come up with to just describe the Bible's teaching. We're taking the whole teaching of the Bible, kind of pulling it together and saying, okay, how are we to understand who God is and how he exists? This is one of those passages that sort of rings those bells. We see a servant who the New Testament's going to make clear is Jesus. We see Yahweh himself, the Lord, God. Then we also see Yahweh pouring out his spirit on this servant. So again, that's why I say there's a, a sort of a Trinitarian flavor to this passage. It's not overtly talking about the Trinity, but we do get a little bit of an insight on how the members of the Trinity function in this passage. So we have God the Father speaking to his righteous servant, God the Son, upon whom he will pour his spirit. Let's start by looking at the ministry of the Father here. And we're just going to zoom in on the Father and the Son, because that's mostly what this passage is talking about. Isn't it interesting to see how the Father speaks about the Son and then to the Son? He says, my soul delights in my servant. I, I poured out my spirit on my servant. And then he's talking directly to him, and he says, 
I will take you by the hand. I will keep you. I will make you as a covenant to the nations. I wonder if we, if we think of God the Father and God the Son interacting in this way. That God the Father takes care of God the Son. He commissions and sends out God the Son, Jesus. Now, when he says that Jesus is going to heal blind eyes, bring out prisoners, release those that have been kept in dungeons, um, does he mean this literally? Yeah. Jesus heals blind people from birth. We see that happen in his ministry. Um, the, the freeing of captives becomes maybe a little bit more difficult, uh, unless you want to say that Jesus somehow was integral in the freeing of Barabbas. I mean, maybe you can make that connection. But it seems that when we read this with a New Testament understanding, we understand, okay, maybe there's some literal meaning here, but it seems the ultimate meaning is spiritual. Jesus will heal eyes that are blind by sin. People who, just like the blind man that he heals in the Gospels, cannot see. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And Jesus, miraculously, in a word, can say, let there be faith. Let there be sight, spiritual sight. Uh, when Jesus is freeing captives, it seems most ultimately he's freeing people that are captive, that are bound by sin. This is the ministry of God the Son that God the Father has commissioned him to fulfill. And again, we, we get this because we see this, this interplay, this interaction between God the Father and God the Son. Now, the New Testament gives us a little bit more detail in this conversation that happens between God the Father and God the Son. This relationship that exists, this interaction that exists, God commissioning Jesus to accomplish something. The New Testament really fills in these gaps beautifully for us, especially in John's Gospel. John's Gospel gives us a much more detailed description of the Father's commissioning of the Son. Listen to these statements. I'm taking these statements from two chapters. John 6 John 17, okay? You don't have to turn to either of those, just, but just listen to these statements. The first group will be from John 6. This is Jesus talking about the Father. And then in John 17, we see Jesus in his high priestly prayer, another one of these situations where we see Jesus talking directly to the Father. Listen to these statements. And again, thinking about how God has commissioned his son, what he's commissioned him to do in the world. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but instead raise it up on the last day. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then listen to Jesus speak to God the Father in John 17. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus says, I have accomplished the work you gave me to do. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Then lastly, Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, those which you have given me. I've guarded them, 
And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, referring to Judas. Do you hear this language? Jesus is referring over and over again to his followers as a group of people that God has given him. Unless you think he's just talking about the apostles that are standing there in John 17, he uses the same language concerning those who will believe in me through their word. So to the apostles, thinking of us as well, those who have believed on Jesus according, because of their word, the apostles' message that's gone out to the world, if we examine this dialogue between God the Son and God the Father, this conclusion is fairly evident. The cre- Christian, talking to Christians here, the creator of the world has entrusted you to the Son for safekeeping. God has commissioned Jesus to guard, to keep your soul from falling. There's a group of souls that have been given to the Son by the Father, and it is the Son's task to redeem these people and to keep them for eternal life. Christian, this is you. When we read in Isaiah that God the Father commissions Jesus to go heal the blind, deliver the prisoner, we learn from the New Covenant, from our New Testament perspective, that God's not just giving him a general command here. He's assigning the Son a people to go and deliver a people to heal. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, that's you. Think of it. God the Father assigning Jesus to take care of you, to guard your soul. We get a sense of this when Jesus tells Peter, I've prayed for you, that your faith will not fail. Jesus longs to keep us, to redeem us, and not to lose us. This will be an important backdrop as we move on to consider the son's ministry that he's been assigned by the father to keep Christians. So that's how God the father's ministry is described here. Let's look secondly at the ministry of Christ. Still just sort of zooming in here, narrowing our focus. According to this text, what will Christ, the servant, do or accomplish? Well, the text structures itself by telling us some things that he won't do and then some things that he will do. He will not cry out in the streets. So there will be no parade for him when he comes. And again, we can look back and see how all these things were fulfilled. There won't be any royal announcement. So there's an element of humility here. There's no pomp surrounding the servant's coming. Again, he's described as a servant So there's an element of humility about the son's ministry. Uh, Again, Matthew used the word, he won't quarrel. He'll be gentle. He won't break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick. Now, these could be terms that are confusing for you. You could be sitting there thinking, a a bruised reed? What does that even mean? Um, A faintly burning wick? Or if you have an older translation, maybe it says a smoldering flax All of it sounds culturally kind of removed from where we are. Uh, So literally, I just want to take a minute, what are these things? Well, a bruised reed, think if you've ever been to a lake or a pond, and you sort of see these uh, slender, tall, thin stalks growing near the water, maybe in the water right at the edge of the shore. These are examples of reeds. So usually you'll see several of them snapped over, the wind's kind of blowing them and they snap, they're very brittle and fragile, just thin stalks. 
And then a faintly burning wick that may be a little more familiar to us. If you think of a candle, um, the wick obviously is the thread in the center of the candle where you actually light the, the wick on fire. So it's what burns when we see a candle burning. So what does it mean that he won't break a bruised reed or quench a smoking flax or a faintly burning wick? It simply means that Christ is gentle with those who are weak. So let's take a moment and reflect on these images for a second. Imagine a candle that's about to go out. So I keep a candle burning in my classroom, and the other day the AC was turned off because the air had gotten kind of cold outside, but then we had a warm day, so now my classroom is just smothering. But I like to keep a candle in there. smells nice, but I've got a fan by the window kind of blowing in some cool air, so my poor candle is just sort of hanging on for dear life the whole day. Uh, just You can see the flame about to go out. It's kind of going out. It's almost out, and then it's back a little bit, and then... Uh, the fan kind of oscillates back over. It's about to go out. It's barely hanging on. So if you think about a, a candle that's about to go out, the flame itself is sort of disappearing, and you see that the, the strand there has these little kind of glowing, smoldering bits to it, but there's smoke starting to come off. It's obvious this candle's time is done. It's faintly, faintly burning, just smoldering now, barely even burning. Think of how fragile the fire is on that wick. The slightest disruption of air nearby, really any sort of movement around it, and it's gone now, it's just smoke. This is a reminder of how fragile we are. We'll zoom in on this text and think about it more carefully here, but I do want to kind of preview. When we think of a a faintly burning wick, when we think of a, a reed, We think of things that are weak, that are little. Think of a reed, how how brittle it is, how fragile, how easily you could just just snap it. One strong gust and it just crack. But Jesus, understanding how faint and brittle and weak and fragile we are, does not look at us with disdain or frustration or disgust. He instead bleeds compassion for weak Christians. All the talk in Christianity of mercy and grace and compassion, it it colors the music that we sing. It's not for nothing. He really is that merciful. He really is that abundantly compassionate with those who are weak. I, I think of my wife. Two nights ago, our, our baby is just a champ. Uh, I, we have a newborn baby. Well, I guess he's not newborn anymore. Um, that's sad. But we, we have a baby. He's about four months old. And he's been sleeping through the night like a champ. He's just, since seven or eight weeks, he's just been through the night. We've been so blessed. Um, but two nights ago, he just lost it for some reason. He's just wailing at the top of his lungs. And so... You know, we're trying to go to sleep, and you know, we, we both got things that we need to do the next day, and so we're getting kind of stressed and a little bit frazzled. I'm thinking, you know, we need to get some sleep here, and um, I watch my wife on the monitor. She goes in there, uh, picks him up out of the crib, kind of sits down on the floor with him, and I just watch as my wife is just caressing this little baby, just kissing him and just kind of singing to him so sweetly. And I thought, man, what a, what a picture of a fragile, helpless, totally dependent little baby 
And how sweetly, mothers in the room, you'll know this from experience, how sweetly and how tenderly she doesn't get mad at him. Maybe in in a harsh moment, a mother may get mad at their child. But God even says, I'm not like you in that regard. I am only compassionate with you who are weak. You who are dependent for everything on me. I'm gentle. I'm tender. I'm soft. God compares himself to a nursing mother, to a a hen who's gathering the, the chicks under her wing. This is so often not the way we think of God, particularly when we're weak, when we sin. We picture God as harsh and stern, that we need to win him over with our obedience. But he's much more like, in his own words, a mother caring for, nursing, taking care of, caressing her little baby. Tending to his needy people does not tire him. Doesn't discourage him. If you've ever had someone in your life who's needy, with all of your good intentions, sometimes you may find sort of a, ah, boy. I think of the the relationship between John Newton and William Cooper. If you're familiar with, with, with those figures from church history, William Cooper was just at the edge of sanity his entire life. A great hymn writer, great poet. Wrote songs like, there is a fountain filled with blood. But yet this is a man who struggled with depression and suicidality and all sorts of things. And John Newton was just constantly tending to him, caring for him, keeping him in his home. He said, there was scarcely an hour for the last two weeks when, that I haven't spent in conversation with Mr. Cooper. It's got to get tiring to constantly be tending to someone so needy. The Lord does not tire tending to us, caring for us. Instead, what does he do? He won't quench, or he won't break the reed, he won't quench the flax, but what will he do instead? He'll establish justice. Okay, so don't think here, he'll come and judge the world for sin. The judge will come and it's over. The the Bible definitely portrays Jesus in in that way at different places. I don't think that's what's intended by this passage. Some interpreters do go that way with this passage, but I, I don't think so. Simply because the description of Jesus as the servant here seems to be highlighting his meekness, his humility, his tenderness. He's not crying out. He's not quarreling. Um, he's not breaking bruised reeds. He's not quenching a smoldering flax. So when we think established justice, I think we should think of the Father's commission of Jesus. We're going to make wrong things right. We're going to establish rightness. We're going to vindicate those who have been oppressed and wronged. So the Father's sending him out here to be a light to the nations. So judgment just doesn't seem to be the focus of this specific passage. Though Isaiah does kind of oscillate between those two poles over the next chapters. So instead, when we read that he's going to establish justice, that he's going to bring forth justice, we should think the servant, Jesus, his ministry is going to be to make things right. Things that are wrong, things that sin has fractured, Jesus will repair. Jesus will set things aright again. So, weak Christian, worn Christian, think about what is it that ails you other than sin or the effects of sin. When Jesus promises to come and establish justice and to make things right, 
That should comfort us in our weakness and our despair. Because the things that we're dealing with, the things that we're struggling against are either sin itself or a direct result of sin. Death and pain and sickness. We should fight an urge to get bitter at God about these things. He's setting them aright. Our hatred, when we experience these things, should be kindled towards sin. And we should understand that when we choose to sin, we align ourselves with all of these things that bring us such despair and fatigue in this world. Jesus is setting those things aright. And we should take comfort in that, that Christ, as he is tenderly keeping our faith alive, He's mightily vanquishing anything that would stand against it. His enemies are being made a footstool under his feet. So we've looked at the, sort of the message of the larger text. Uh, we've looked at sort of the ministry of the Father here, the ministry of the Son. Now I'd like to take a few minutes just finally here to apply this message to the, the maladies of the soul. So we zoom here all the way into verse 3. This talk of the bruised reed with whom Christ is so tender, this smoking flax that he won't quench. I want us to just think here at the end, who exactly are these weak Christians toward whom Jesus acts so kindly? And what are the weaknesses that ail them? First, Christ is tender toward those who are distressed over their own sin. So if you find yourself worn, just tired, and you look at your heart and you just see a lot of things there that you wish weren't there, you look at your life and you see the absence of a lot of things that you wish were there, and that brings sort of a discouragement upon you. Uh, You find yourself discouraged over your own sinfulness. Maybe you look around and you see other Christians that seem to be enjoying a vibrant relationship, a, a pure relationship with Jesus, and your heart, by contrast, seems dull. Maybe you hear about these weak, bruised Christians and you want to hope that Christ will be that gentle towards you, but you suspect that your heart instead is hardened and obstinate instead of weak and bruised. Maybe you find yourself, frustratingly so, unmoved by Christian gatherings, Christian worship, hearty singing, things that used to stir your soul up towards affection for Christ. Now maybe you just, you feel so apathetic. It's amazing that the same heart can, even in the same day, seem to be so bruised and tender and ripe for an administration of God's mercy, and then, in an instant, can seem hard, cold. Christ and his blessings to us just seem inaccessible. And we just think of times where things were better. Maybe, secondly, you're someone who's faint-hearted. Christ is tender towards people who are faint-hearted. The sort of Christian that's Constantly fearful. You look at circumstances around you, you survey the possibilities of what life might bring the next day, week, year, and you're just overcome with anxiousness. There's so many possible tragedies that could befall you or those you love at any given time, and so you find it so hard to focus on and trust in God's kindness 
in the midst of all of these possibilities. Things that could go wrong. Fear of death, fear of trial, fear of loneliness. These fears make Christians timid. Where where courage seems like a, a foreign concept. These are Christians with faint hearts. They often can lack stability and over time can find themselves like a wave, just driven with the wind, tossed about. Maybe that's you. Or third, one more. Christ is also tender toward those who doubt that they're even his. I have a special kinship with this one because I spent a lot of years in this position. Do you wonder all the time whether God has accepted you? Do you feel a a sternness whenever you consider God? That anytime you pray, sing, seek to worship him, that he's unmoved, annoyed even at your hypocrisy because you did this over here and now you would come and worship God? Hypocrite. Not even a Christian. Christians don't act like you're acting. You feel even a slight hope sometimes that you're accepted by God and maybe he has in fact redeemed you. You're immediately suspicious of it. Can't be. Your own conscience is used by the devil and your flesh to just assault you. Any obedience that you do experience is tainted because you're left wondering after you obey whether it was sufficient to endear God to you that he might actually feel positively towards you because you obeyed him. This is the sort of mindset of a a weak and bruised Christian soul that has forgotten whether or not he is even truly Christ's. And as a result of this sort of thinking, this sort of Christian finds himself weak, worn out, and always afraid because God seems an enemy to you rather than a friend rather than a father and protector. It's tiring to be always unsure of your state before the God you claim to love and serve. In short, whether one of these or many of these or all of these describe you or whether none of them did, but you still feel a sense of weakness as a Christian, a bruised reed, a smoldering wick, these are Christians who are weak and needy. So what is the good news to these Christians? What encouragement does the Bible give here in Isaiah 42? That Christ has compassion for you. He understands. Think of it. He understands. Experientially. Knows. You realize that this is one of the very reasons that he became one of us. I hold my baby boy and I think sometimes, was Jesus really like this? Jesus himself so helpless, dependent on others for everything? Yes, he was. And the reason he did that, because he was made like us, he can sympathize with us. Really, truly sympathize with you. Imagine that Jesus and all of his holiness and you and all of your sinfulness, he can find a way to sympathize with you in your sin. He remembers with an omniscient memory, what sorts of feelings can overtake human beings when they suffer and are tempted. He hasn't forgotten what it's like to be one of us. 
In Isaiah 53, talking again of the servant, tells us he's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. And how is that so? Isaiah 53 tells us, because he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Ephesians 5, which was brought up in the Sunday school class this morning, it describes the relationship between Christ and the church, and it says that Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. That's you, Christian. Yes, weak Christian, faint-hearted Christian, doubting Christian, fearful Christian. Christ has been commissioned by God the Father to nourish you, to cherish you, What tenderness, what compassion Christ has for weak and wounded Christians. So Christian, are you distressed over your hard heart? Are you discouraged at how entrenched your sin seems to be in your soul? Go to Christ. Really, go to him. Take hold of any little inclination you have towards obedience and go to Christ. Follow that inclination to Christ for help. He wants to help us. He loves to help us. Remember, his ministry is one to sinners, not righteous. So are you a sinner? Then Christ would have you. Hard-hearted as you may feel you are. Christian, are you fearful? Timid? always afraid of every danger and threat, go to Christ. He's he's described himself as a refuge, a help. He offers peace that calms fears and anxieties. And Christian, do you doubt that you're even his? Do you wonder, surely I can't really be a Christian. How hard my heart is. Go to him. Even if you doubt that he'll have you, go to him. The Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote a whole book on this text. It's called The Bruised Reed. And in that book, Sibbs says, cast yourself into the arms of Christ. And if you perish, perish there. How sweet that we who are so tremulous and and fragile could find relief and rest Even if we're still tremulous and fearful, we can find protection in the arms of Christ. So Christian, if you're weak, take hold of Christ. If you sense in your heart a little strand of inclination towards faith or obedience, take hold of that strand and follow it all the way to Christ. Let's pray. God, we we don't want to hide from the fact that we're weak. We know we're weak. We we are acquainted with our weakness. We understand it well. Our sin is always in front of us, reminding us of our weakness and our hard-heartedness and our sinfulness. But Lord, you have promised to take care of, to cherish, to nourish broken and weak and wounded sinners like us. You are a friend of sinners. So God, we we confess this morning, as individual Christians, as a church, we are sinners. We don't hide from it, we don't run from it. 
And so we, we want to embrace the hope and the care that is found in Christ for sinners. Give us the will and the desire to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.